Well, good morning. For those that I haven't met, my name is Matt Morton. I'm the teaching pastor at our Creekside campus uh, in the south part of town. We're going to be in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you're going to want to get over to Matthew 8 and 9. Uh, I read a story some time ago about a woman in Florida who in 1994 made herself a grilled cheese sandwich, something that all of us have probably done at one time or another, either on the stove or in a toaster oven or whatever. Uh, But this was no ordinary grilled cheese sandwich. The reason is because she made the sandwich, she sat down to eat her lunch, and when she took a bite, then she looked down at the sandwich, and uh, this is what she saw. Now, I don't know how well you can see that from where you're sitting But there appears to be a face on the sandwich. There are two eyes kind of up there in the middle, a nose, a pair of lips. And then uh, it it seems like she's actually got some hair that cascades down the sides of the sandwich. Use your imagination and you can see it. Now, many of us have probably seen what looks like a face or, you know, an animal in our food. And we just kind of move on with our lives. This woman saw this and came to the conclusion that this was the Virgin Mary, that it is a sign from heaven to her. And so she took the sandwich and she wrapped it up and she placed it in the bedside table in her room where it stayed for the next 10 years. This was 1994. She put it in her bedside table. 10 years later, she says that it had grown no mold. And so she decided it was time to share this sign with the world. So she called a reporter who came out and took some pictures and he did a news story on the miracle of the grilled cheese sandwich. And within days... The news story went all over the country. It was a national story. CNN picked it up. NBC, ABC, all of the major news outlets ran stories about this sandwich. She ended up putting it on eBay where it sold for $28,000 because somebody wanted to be a part of this miraculous sign. Now, whenever I hear stories like that, they intrigue me because I think they highlight how badly we all want to experience some sort of supernatural encounter with God. All of us want to see a miracle or be a part of a miracle. But stories like this also raise questions in my mind. Uh, One of which is, how do we know this is a miracle? How do we know that this isn't just a random assortment of burn marks that just turned into what looked like a face and she drew conclusions, right? There was no uh, prophecy that preceded this sandwich to tell this woman how to interpret it, right? So it raises the question, really, what is a miracle in the first place? How do we define a miracle? Uh, That's not an easy question to answer. In fact, theologians debate and argue and disagree about the definition of a miracle. We're going to be looking at miracles this morning for the greater part of our sermon. And so I want to offer a biblical definition of a miracle that we're going to work with this morning. Okay, this is my definition, but a number of people would say something similar, I think. A miracle is a supernatural event in which God reveals something about himself or his purposes in the world. All right, so we want to break that down for a minute. It is a supernatural event. Here's what I mean. Uh, A miracle might include natural occurrences, certainly as a part of it. But by supernatural, we mean that a miracle is more than merely natural. 
All right, so if you look back, for example, at the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, and you look at the 10 plagues uh, in Egypt, right, one of those plagues, we'll just select one, one of those plagues was a giant hailstorm. Now, hailstorms are natural events, aren't they? Hailstorms happen all the time. Most of us have experienced them or been in them. All right, so in and of itself, a hailstorm is not supernatural, but Exodus says it's a miracle or a wonder. Why? Because it is preceded by a word from God that in this place, in this nation, at this time, God was going to send hail for a specific purpose, to communicate to Pharaoh that this was God's people and that God had authority and he was to let them go. See, so an ordinary event in that case turns into a supernatural miracle because of the timing and what God says about it. Let me make another comparison that might help. Uh, Many of us, when a baby is born, uh, have become accustomed to saying the birth of a baby is a miracle. And it certainly feels that way if you're the parent. I have three children of my own. Every Every single one of those child, their, their, their children, their birth felt miraculous to us. Right? And God is certainly in the birth of every child. Every life is created by God. Right? But in and of itself, a baby is not a miracle because it is a natural occurrence. Right? Now, if that baby was, for example, born to a 90-year-old woman who was barren after God had come and said, at this time next year, Sarah, you will have a baby in order to demonstrate that my promise to Abraham's descendants is true. And then Sarah has that baby, right? That's a miracle. What otherwise might be a natural occurrence could become a supernatural occurrence if God says so, and if God operates in a way sometimes even that is beyond the ordinary laws of nature. Now, the reason that I am uh, lengthening this definition for us this morning is because it's going to be really important when we talk about the miracles of Jesus, right? And here's why. As, As we move through scripture, this definition helps us to understand why at certain eras in biblical history, we see more miracles than in other eras of biblical history. All right, so the Exodus, I mentioned it a moment ago. Uh, The reason we see so many miracles during the period of the Exodus is because God is establishing the nation of Israel as his people. He's giving them the law. He's delivering them from Egypt. And so God is speaking a new and powerful message that requires validation. And so all of the signs and miracles that pop up in the Exodus our validation of God's message, right? But then we have long periods of time, even in the Old Testament, where there aren't a whole lot of miracles, right? The kingships of David and Solomon and even Saul, you have a few miracles here and there, but not the same level or explosion of miracles that you see in other places. When the nation of Israel is in exile in the time of Daniel, In Babylon, you see a number of miracles designed to validate God's presence with the people, even in Babylon, and the prophetic message about the future of God's people. And then we have 400 years of silence after the people return to the land in which we don't see a whole lot of prophecy or miracles. And then Jesus comes. 
And of course, with the coming of Jesus, there is again an explosion of miracles. And in Jesus' lifetime, of course, most of those miracles occur through the agency of Jesus himself because through Jesus, God is saying something powerful and new. It's not any longer that the Messiah, the King, will come. It's that he's here. It's not any longer uh, what the people were expecting, which was simply a, a Messiah king to reign over their nation. This is a king who will rule the universe. This is a king who is not only a man, but God in the flesh. And so Jesus does all of these miracles in order to validate the message of who he is. So as we look at the miracles of Jesus, here's what we're going to see this morning. Jesus' miracles prove his authority and provide for us a preview of his kingdom. All right, two things. Jesus' miracles prove his authority. They prove he is who he says he is, and they provide a preview of what Jesus intends to do with all the authority that he has. All right, it's not just that he has authority, but they show us a picture of the kingdom that he plans to bring. All right, so they prove his authority and provide a preview of his kingdom. If you were here a couple of weeks ago when Brian talked from the Sermon on the Mount, you will remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus laid out all of the values of his kingdom. This is what the righteousness of the kingdom of God will look like when Jesus reigns over it. All right, and then as you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus establishes that he is the way to enter into God's kingdom. He talks about this narrow gate and only a few will enter into the narrow gate. And he positions himself as the one who decides who gets in and who does not get in. All right, and at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you will build your life on the foundation of my words, nothing will shake you. And Jesus sets himself up as the king who has come to set up the kingdom of God. And at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, we have this little phrase that says, the people were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one having authority and not as their teachers of the law. And then in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we have an intense view of a variety of miracles that Jesus did to validate the authority of his teaching. Matthew 8 and 9, for lack of a better way to say it, Jesus is kicking tail and taking names, right? All the way through Matthew 8 and 9, it's like there's a, uh, there's a sick person, he'll heal him. There's a dead person, he'll raise him. There's a storm, he'll calm it. There's a demon, he'll cast it out. And Jesus just moves through his world, demonstrating his power over everything in nature and everything supernatural. And over and over and over again in Matthew 8 and 9, we will see words like authority, and obey. We will see the Greek imperative where Jesus issues commands to nature itself and to the demons and to sick people and everything Jesus commands and everybody obeys him at a word so that Jesus validates he is who he says he is and in doing so he also says with the power I have I will bring a kingdom in which every enemy of God and humankind is vanquished. No more sin. No more sickness. No more death. No more Satan. No more natural disaster. Every enemy is vanquished. Jesus says, I'm the one that has the power to do all of that. 
Right, for you and me, as we look at Matthew 8 and 9, I think uh, these concepts are really critical uh, for our lives. And here's why. Because as we see the miracles of Christ, we're going to see that he is in control in every area in which we are not in control. You and I control very little about our lives. We control very little in our world. All of us face pain and sin, and death, and heartache. And we have very little control over the circumstances of our lives, much less the state of the world. But Jesus demonstrates he has control over all of it and gives us a hope that for everybody who knows him, a world is coming in which all of the pain, all of the death, all of the enemies of God will be vanquished. And so like the disciples in that little boat when Jesus calms the storm, I think the miracles of Jesus call us to do what they did and fall on our knees in worship to say this is the one true king, the only one who has authority and power over the universe and will use it to save the world. That's where we're going in Matthew 8 and 9 this morning. I want to show you just a list of the miracles in Matthew 8 and 9 as we get going. There are 10 miracle accounts in Matthew 8 and 9. There's the healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Then there's what we have, the mini at evening. It's just a description. It says, uh, Jesus went around casting out demons and healing people who asked for healing. There's the calming of the storm. There's these demon-possessed men at Gadarenes, the healing of a paralytic man, the raising of Jairus' daughter and the healing of a bleeding woman, healing of two blind men, and the healing of the demon-possessed mute. Just one after another after another, Jesus heals and does miracles. And as we mentioned, first of all, these miracles prove Christ's authority. These miracles prove Christ's authority. Again, remember, when Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount speaks as one having authority, that's significant, and we'll see that woven through Matthew 8 and 9. The, The rabbis of the first century, for the most part, didn't create their own sermons. Right? Instead, what they did is they would read from the rabbis or the scribes of the past, and they would just take their favorite quotes from the most authoritative scribes and rabbis and string them together into a sermon. It was called pearl stringing. And what we see with Jesus is he does something totally different. When he teaches, he says, this is the way the kingdom of God is, and I'm the one who can get you there. And so they're astonished that he teaches with authority and then he moves throughout the ancient world and demonstrates that authority. I don't know if you've ever known somebody who makes claims about themselves that they can't back up with their actions, right? We have an expression for it. It's called, your mouth is writing checks that your body cannot cash, right? If you're old enough, you know what a check is. You know how to cash one, right? You understand that? Your mouth is writing checks, your body can't cash. I had a friend like this, or I should say an acquaintance like this in junior high that would regularly make ridiculous and outlandish claims about his own abilities. Uh, He told us a story one time. I'm not making up that he told us this story. He said, I was at the beach with my family and I got into the ocean and I began to swim and I was chased by a shark. And it was after me, and for a while I was able to swim faster than this shark and stay ahead of it. 
but it was closing in on me. And right before the shark got me, thank goodness my dad showed up in his helicopter and dropped a rope and I grabbed it and I flew away. Right? And we heard him tell that story and we thought, I think that's from Rambo, actually. That's not from your life. <laughs> but regularly, he would say things about himself that he could not validate. Right? There were claimants to be the Messiah, the King of Israel, even in Jesus' day. But Jesus is the only one who says it and then he backs it up. Miracles then prove Christ's authority. First of all, we see how they prove his authority over sickness. Look at chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now look at this, for I also am a man under what? Authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. See, Jesus recognizes that this man's faith is remarkable. And the reason it's remarkable is because this is a Gentile man who sees what Jesus is and acknowledges that Jesus has authority over sickness. And he says, look, just like I'm a soldier and I tell my subordinates to go and they go, I ask them to come and they come. I recognize that you have authority over the world and proximity makes no difference to that authority. He says, Jesus, if you say it, it's going to happen. And Jesus speaks the word and the sickness is healed. And it's so reminiscent of what we see in Genesis 1 when God speaks What happens? The universe responds. And who does John tell us that Jesus is? He is the word of God made flesh. So that when he speaks, sickness runs away. Right, but sickness, of course, is just like a little cousin to death. Right, sickness really ultimately is just a reminder that one day we are going to die. That our bodies don't work as they're supposed to work and they are on in the process of decay. And so what we see in Matthew 8 and 9 is not only does Jesus demonstrate authority over sickness, but also over death itself. Look at chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. There are three people in the gospel narratives that Jesus raises from the dead besides himself. There's this young girl, Jairus' daughter. There's the son of the widow of Nain. 
And then, of course, there's Lazarus in John chapter 11, where Jesus proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life, right? Anybody who believes in Jesus will not die. And Jesus demonstrates not even death, the great enemy of humanity, the great enemy that entered into the Garden of Eden when Satan deceived Adam and Eve. Not even death has authority over Jesus. So Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus has authority over death. Jesus has authority over Satan. Look at chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. When he came to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him saying, if you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Right, because Jesus demonstrates his authority even over Satan and his demons. He says, go away, and they go away. Not even what we perceive as this great enemy of God has any power over Jesus. He just says, get out of here, and the demons leave. And you see that repeatedly in chapters 8 and 9. Authority over sickness, authority over death, authority over Satan, authority over sin itself. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 now. Getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Authority. On earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or get up and walk. It's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven. The reason is because uh, without some sort of sign, nobody can validate whether it's happened or not. But I can tell you your sins are forgiven all day long. But what Jesus does, he says, look, uh, so that you may know that I have authority even over sin, that only God has the authority to forgive sin. And in fact, Jesus says, I am in fact God in the flesh. He tells the man, you get up and go home. And what he does is he validates now that he has authority not only over sickness, but over sin itself, right? Because every sickness and death ultimately traces its growth to sin. And what I mean is this, Uh, if you're sick this morning, I'm not suggesting that you're sick because of some specific sin that you committed, right? I'm not suggesting that you did something wrong that the rest of us did not do, right? But what we see biblically is that when sin entered into humanity, death entered as well. All of us will die. All of us are sick, actually, in this room, whether you recognize it or not. You are headed toward decay and death. And as we said, sickness is simply like a little cousin of death. 
And yet Jesus says the greatest consequence of sin itself, which is death, which is preceded by sickness. Jesus says, I have authority over sickness, but I also have authority over the root cause itself, which is sin. And Jesus in his life and death and resurrection would destroy sin and death. Authority over sickness, death, Satan, sin, and over nature itself. In chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea do what? They obey him. Even the winds and the sea recognize his authority. Nothing in all of creation resists his authority. As we said at the beginning of this talk, I think that's significant for us. And here's why. Because nothing resists Jesus' authority. But you know what? Everything resists our authority. You and I have no real control over anything that actually happens to us, do we? Uh, We didn't control the day we were born. We do not control the day we die. We often feel that we can't even control the thoughts and intentions and feelings of our own hearts or what we do, much less those of other people. How many of you have tried to get your children or your spouse to act in some way differently from how they act? Do you have control over your life? Absolutely not. Uh, For Christmas, I bought my seven-year-old son a little inexpensive outdoor drone, a little helicopter that we can fly around outside on our street. Uh, I bought myself one as well so I could play with him as a responsible dad. I thought it was the right thing to do. So uh, periodically we'll go outside and we'll play with these drones. And uh, my son loves to see how high he can get his drone off the ground. And the problem is that on our street are a number of very tall trees. And uh, the first week that we had it, he hung it up in a tree and I had to shake the tree and I got it down. So a couple weeks ago we were out there and I said, Samuel, I just want to remind you, keep it low, right? Keep it low because if you go too high, it's going to land in a tree and I'm not going to be able to get it back. So we begin to fly and I look over and I see him starting to kind of push the boundaries, He's going a little higher. I'm like, keep it low. He's going a little bit higher. I'm like, please keep it low. Uh, Finally, it goes up 20, 25, 30 feet. And uh, at this point, I said, Sammy, you're going to have to uh, drop it and keep it low. And he's got his hands on the controls. And he looks up with a terrified look on his face. And he says, I can't bring it down. It's out of my control. And he's working the levers. And sure enough, I see it hover over the highest tree on the street. And then it hangs at the very top. Now, I did get it back. That's a whole other story for another day. But as I think about that, I thought, how many of us feel like that's our life? You have a plan, don't you? Maybe you're about to graduate college or you just graduated and you say, I've got my five-year plan. I've got my 10-year plan. I will get such and such a job. I will get married to a perfect person and have perfect children. And my life will be an unbroken string of successes. 
in which I control my destiny. And how many of us are a little bit further down the line and we say, man, I I had my hands on the controls, but nothing happened. At least not like I wanted it to. We don't control the circumstances or direction of our life. Right, but what does Jesus do? He walks into the chaos and he begins issuing orders and everything obeys him. And in doing so, he validates that he is exactly who he said he was. Not only the Messiah of Israel, but the king of the universe. And so for those who know him, we find hope and comfort in that while we are out of control, he's got his hands firmly on the controls and the world does what he says. Okay, but it's not just that the miracles prove his authority. Because if he was simply a person with authority, I don't know that that would give us a whole lot of comfort. There are lots of men and women with authority who use that authority in evil ways, right? But the miracles not only prove Christ's authority, they do something else. They preview Christ's kingdom. Through these miracles, Jesus demonstrates, not only am I in charge, but I'm going to use the authority I have as God in the flesh to bring a world in which there is no more sin, sickness, death, No more Satan, no more natural chaos. Every enemy will fall. And Jesus begins to demonstrate what the king's world will one day look like for those who know him. I don't know if any of you are familiar uh, with this guy here. This is Bob Ross. If you don't know who Bob Ross is, he is a painter who had a television show on PBS back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, He would paint this type of landscape uh, during the course of his 30-minute show. And the concept was that if you watched Bob, you could learn how to paint. And I'll admit, I love watching this show. It is the most relaxing show on the planet. Bob Ross has this voice. It's like, we're just going to paint a couple of happy trees right here, right? (laughs) Some happy clouds, right? Even when he kind of smacks his brush on the easel, he does it in such a nice way, right? He kind of laughs. I have fallen asleep to this show a number of times. I love it. Now, what's interesting though is every time I see the paintings, I think I want to live there, wherever that is, Because he's painting the world that I wish would exist. And in fact, uh, here's a quote from Bob Ross. He says, I got a letter from somebody here a while back and they said, Bob, everything in your world seems to be happy. That's for sure. That's why I paint. It's because I can create the kind of world that I want and I can make this world as happy as I want it. Shoot, if you want bad stuff, watch the news. What's he saying? I paint the world that I wish would exist. And he gives us a picture of the beautiful world that exists in his mind. But if we're honest, it doesn't exist in reality. Now, the reason I share this is because Jesus' miracles paint for us a picture, not only of the world that Jesus wishes will be, but actually of the world that actually will be because of who he is. Every single one of Jesus' miracles, in some way or other, provides a preview of his kingdom and, in fact, is a fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecy about the coming kingdom of God. 
Right? So when we see Christ's kingdom being previewed in Matthew 8 and 9, we see that it's going to be a kingdom in which there is no more sickness. Right? He heals almost every sickness you can imagine in Matthew 8 and 9. When you look at the prophecies about the coming kingdom of God, we see passages like this in Isaiah chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. You realize right here in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus heals the blind. He heals the mute. He heals the lame. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, who was sitting in prison during all of this, would send some of his disciples and say, hey, are you the one who is to come or should we expect somebody else? In other words, John is thinking, hey, I'm in prison and I just want to know, Jesus, are you the Messiah or or is there going to be somebody else? Because it doesn't seem like I'm living in your kingdom. Here's how Jesus responds. He says, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus says the kingdom that I am bringing is exactly the kingdom that Isaiah prophesied here in Isaiah chapter 35, John. Look at the miracles to see that the kingdom is coming for all who will trust in Jesus. It's a kingdom of no more sickness. It's also a kingdom of no more death. As we've talked about before, death is the ultimate and final outcome of sin and of sickness. And yet the prophecies in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament tell us that in the final kingdom of God, ruled over by Jesus, there will be no more death. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would say, when Jesus comes and the dead in Christ rise from their grave, then that saying will come about, oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? When we get to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, John says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. When Jesus burst into the world and began demonstrating his power and authority over the universe, he's also telling us the kingdom that I will bring is free of these enemies of sickness and death. No more funerals. No more seeing Our loved ones suffer and die. No more facing the prospect of our own mortality as we tick day by day toward our own death. Death will be swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ. Because the Jesus who is coming is the same Jesus who looked at that little girl and said, get on up. And who called to Lazarus in the grave and said, Lazarus, come on. Come on out. That little girl and Lazarus, they had to die again. Right? They got to rise, but they're the only people I know of that had to die twice. Right? Bummer. But there's good news. The trumpet's going to sound, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first and meet him in the air and forever be with him. He says, I have a kingdom in which there will be no more sickness, no more death, no more natural chaos. Right? The world will function as it was intended to function. As Jesus stands in the middle of that chaotic storm that threatened the lives of his disciples and he, he, usher, he utters a word and the storm stops, he demonstrates that in his kingdom, nature won't turn against the residents of the earth. The rain and the sun and the world will work like it's supposed to. When Jesus took uh, the five loaves and the two fishes and he multiplied them and he fed an entire crowd, Jesus demonstrates that in his kingdom, there will be no hunger or poverty. There will be enough for everybody to eat. The ground itself will no longer work against us. All the way since the fall in Genesis 3, the world has functioned poorly. I look at Genesis chapter 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Just yesterday, my wife said to me, Matt, our lawn is starting to look bad. There are more weeds than grass. Right? And I looked at the lawn, and sure enough, I go, why is it that it's so easy to grow weeds? And so hard to pull them and so hard to grow real grass. Uh, Many years ago in in another house we were living at, we had an elderly neighbor who one day while I was spreading weed and feed on the lawn and trying to defeat this weed issue, he came over and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm fertilizing the lawn. I'm trying to kill the weeds. And he kind of chuckled. And he said, you know, a couple years ago, I just told my wife, if it's green, I'm good. (laughs) I've given up. I can't win that battle. So I just mow over the weeds and the grass and it looks green enough. Because as long as the earth is cursed, that's going to be the nature of our world. Why is it that terrible bugs like mosquitoes and fire ants proliferate while better animals seem to struggle? Why is the bald eagle endangered and yet the Kroger parking lot is filled with grackles? That is the curse. The world doesn't operate the way it is supposed to operate. Romans chapter 8 tells us that all of creation groans for redemption. When we get to the book of Revelation, John says there will no longer be any curse. When Jesus utters a word and even nature itself obeys, he says, I have the authority to fix everything that's wrong with the world. And one day I'm going to do it. No more sickness. No more death. No more natural chaos. No more Satan. No more Satan. All throughout this passage, Jesus casts out demons. He sent these demons into a group of swine. right? Because even the demons have to ask Jesus permission to go anywhere. Swine ran off a cliff and the demons go to the abyss. And Jesus demonstrates his authority over every enemy of God and says the day is coming when every enemy will be vanquished. Again, we go to the book of Revelation. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone 
where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan will no longer have any authority in God's world. Sin will be vanquished. Death will be abolished. And the world will function as it ought to function. So that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that when he reigns, every enemy will become a footstool under his feet. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Everything we hate that we cannot control, Jesus will do away with. Now, how can he, how can he make that promise to us? Well, here's how we know. Here's how we know is as you follow the pathway of Christ's life throughout the rest of the book of Matthew, really through all the gospels, what you see is Jesus demonstrates that he is God in flesh. But then what Jesus does is he pays the necessary price to defeat all these enemies, right? Because remember the root of all death, the root of all sin began in Genesis 3. When Satan deceived Adam and Eve and sin entered that garden and it entered into humanity and now as a result, we are destined for death apart from intervention. And so what Jesus did is he took on himself on the cross all of the penalty of our sin and he died for us. And he went to the grave and then three days later, he rose again. He came to life. And he defeated sin and death and Satan. And all that remains is the final completion of that victory. When Jesus comes back for all those who trust in him and establishes a perfect kingdom in which he will reign forever. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know God through Jesus Christ, the great message of the gospel of Matthew is that uh, every sin and every enemy that you face, everything that you hate and everything that separates you from God has been dealt with by Jesus Christ. And for all who trust in him, you have eternal life and the promise of a future free of death and sickness and sin and Satan. For those who know Jesus Christ this morning, I think there are a couple of ways we can apply this passage as we close. Okay? As we recognize Jesus' miracles, prove his authority and provide a preview of his kingdom, a couple of ways to apply. Okay, first one is this. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. All right, whatever we're facing today, if we know Jesus, it's, it's not the end of the story. The day will arrive when we no longer will simply live in hopeful anticipation, but Jesus will return and set us free forever and ever. So each morning we wake up and we rejoice in hope, right? It's not a hope like, man, I really hope this will happen, but it's a confident certainty that because Jesus rose from the dead, he's going to come back. So each day we wake up and we ask this question, is it today? Is it today? And as we wait, we rejoice 
that we know the day is coming. And then we do as those disciples so long ago. We fall on our knees in worship. And we say, thank you, God, that you provided a way for us to know we have a hopeful and perfect future. We rejoice in hope and we worship the King knowing that the same Jesus who exercised his authority over everything in the universe is coming back to set up a kingdom in which all our enemies will be vanquished and all our hopes will be fulfilled in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. What a beautiful opportunity for us to see a picture of your son, Jesus, his power and his authority, and yet his infinite love for us. He is not a ruler or dictator after the pattern of this world's kings who care more for their own authority and power than for their subjects. But instead, Jesus is a king who reaches down in love and compassion to save all his people from every enemy. So we thank you for sending him. We pray we would rejoice in hope and daily worship the one who has provided salvation and life for us. We thank you and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.